with you this morning. Uh, Open it to where we left off in Genesis, Genesis chapter 18, uh, beginning in verse 16, and we will uh, look at the rest of chapter 18 and all of chapter 19. I was just talking with uh, our brother Ken Steffen before worship this morning about the benefits of preaching through the Bible in a systematic fashion. One of the benefits is that you get to preach all of God's word. One of the drawbacks is that you have to preach all of God's word. (laughs) Genesis 18 and 19 is one of those passages that we would maybe like to skip over. It would be convenient for us to do so. In Genesis, the end of 18 and all of chapter 19, we have the story of God's judgment upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is not necessarily a family-friendly text by the standards of the Disney Channel or whatever your standards for family-friendly are, but it is incredibly helpful to us as believers. It's helpful to our souls. It's helpful to us in our, our efforts and in our prayers to reach the lost. Genesis 18 and 19 is hard because we find that, that yet once again in the Bible, no one wears white hats or black hats. It's not a spaghetti western, right? These 66 books that we call the Word of God. In one sense, I'm really glad that there are in the Bible real people, real characters with, with their uh, uh, commendable attributes and with also their less commendable attributes. It's, it's encouraging to me who, who has his commendable attributes and his less than commendable attributes to know that God deals with broken, messed up people. It reminds me that this is God's word about his very real dealings with very real people. That this book isn't composed of a bunch of fairy tales and and fables where everything works out just the way that it's supposed to in every little situation. But but this is a real history about a real God. I'm encouraged by that. But in another sense, I, I hate that there are real people in the Bible. Because it forces me to have to come to grips with some really hard passages with conflicting characters right at the center of them. But even as conflicting as those characters may be, there's one character who remains constant through it all. And that is God. We'll find in our text this morning a familiar story of God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness. Rescuing Lot from the destruction of the city for the sake of his promise, of God's promise to Abraham. What I want for us to see about God, the consistent character of Scripture this morning, is this. That God is both just and merciful. In his justice, he judges sin, and in his mercy, he provides rescue. I would hope that we should be warned this morning of the destructive nature of our sin and to repent of it for salvation and to be motivated to pray in intercession for those who are still lost and in danger of destruction. Perhaps you're visiting this morning, you're a friend of, of someone and you're not yet a Christian and in your mind you're saying, I knew it, I knew my friend was going to bring me to church on the day that the pastor talked about sin. I hate to disappoint you. I talk about sin every week. (laughs) Having said that and knowing that we are going to look at and and come to uh, grips with the just and merciful God this morning, I would ask that you would stand with me as we begin reading our text this morning. Genesis 18, beginning in verse 16, and through the end of the chapter we read, Picking up after uh, the, the scene continues from where we left off last week outside of Abraham's tent with uh, the Lord and the two men that were meeting there with Abraham face to face. We read, then the men set out from there and they looked down toward Sodom and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may uh, command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. 
Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find 50, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? The Lord said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, Abram spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then Abraham said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose, suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. God, as we come to your word and, and uh, a difficult passage, not difficult to understand, but maybe difficult to grapple with, what we pray for this morning is your grace to understand it, the help of your Holy Spirit to apply it to our lives, and for continued faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. God, you speak to us through your word this morning. Build your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Continue reading the rest of chapter 19. Here we go. Just keep your Bibles open. Read along. The two angels then came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to, uh, to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But Lot pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded Lot's house. And they called to Lot, where are the men, the, the men who came to you tonight? Breathe them out to us that so we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not yet known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. They said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn. He's a stranger. He has become the judge of us. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men, the angels of the Lord, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them. And they shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they, were, uh, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become so great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I, I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. 
Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a, it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. The angel said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now when Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar, so he, came in a, uh, he, so he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve our offspring from our father. So they made their father, drunk, they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn son, the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Genesis 18 and 19 is a tragic text. One that ought to break our hearts, burden our souls for the weight of sin. Yet in the midst of this Deep and tragic text, we see a silver lining of sorts. We see God, the consistent one, God, the just and merciful, present through all of it, teaching us about himself and how he deals with us and the gravity of our sin. In the text before us this morning, we see the just and merciful God who warns us of the danger of sin, warns us of the danger of sin. This is not God's first warning about sin in all of Genesis. In fact, the first one is in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Shortly after God has created man and woman in his own image. And, and uh, we read there in Genesis two fifteen, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. This is my command, the Lord says. For in the day you eat of it, in the day that you disobey my command, you shall surely die. Genesis 18, verses 20 and 21, the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I'll go down to see whether they've done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. In 19, chapter, 12, or chapter 19, verses 12 and 13, the Lord, uh, we read, The men uh, said to Lot, those angelic beings sent by the Lord, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone in the city? Bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy it because of the sin of this city and how it has risen to the Lord. Friends, God's justice, though he warns us of his sin, does not demand that he give us multiple warnings for sin. He gave the one in Genesis 2, and that would suffice for all generations of humanity. Sin equals death. To disobey my command, God says to Adam and Eve, is to die. Romans 6.23 says it plainly. The wages, the earnings, our paycheck for sin is death. Think about it. When you drove your car to the church building this morning... There were not police officers and legislators standing on every street corner reminding you with placards and billboards not to speed or to run through red lights. Those laws have already been passed and you had to know them to pass the test to get your driver's license, I pray. You were told, 
You were told once in driver's ed of the law and expected to remember it and to keep it. So God is just, he is holy. He always does what is right and he does not need to remind us of the danger of sin. Yet in his mercy, he does. The fact that God warns us of the danger of sin is, uh, is part of his mercy. The deep problem of our sin, though, is that we often love it too much to listen to God's warning. That seems to be the case with Lot, who moved to the city of Sodom in chapter 14 of Genesis. Lot, who was taken captive by those Mesopotamian kings who made war through the valley, and, re- and Lot, who was rescued by Abraham in that same chapter, The same Lot who moved to Sodom returns to live in that city of Sodom, which we have known as wicked from Genesis 13, 13. I wish I knew what was in Lot's mind. I wish I knew how he could justify moving his family to this place. How he could justify offering his unmarried, undefiled daughters to the ravenous crowd to protect his guests. I wish I knew how Lot could linger in the city, knowing that it was going to be destroyed in just a matter of moments. I wish I knew how, like a dog to his vomit, I could return to my sins of anger and pride and lust and greed and selfishness. I wish I knew why I so often have loved my sins so much so as not to heed the merciful warning of God to turn from it. Friends, God owes us nothing. He is holy. And we, like those residents of Sodom, are traitors and rebels to his holy reign over the universe. Oh, but we say, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not as bad as those Sodomites. I'm not nearly so bad as that, my goodness, Pastor. Really? Are you calling me as bad? You're saying, in my sin, I'm as bad as these sodomites that God rained down fire and sulfur on? Friends, we are. Isn't it like us to point at the extreme sins of others? The the super egregious transgressions of the sodomites, the, the Hitlers, the Stalins, the Neros of history. To say, I'm not as bad as that. But in reality, we're, we're not in our own hearts any better than those. Right. We're not any better than these sodomites. We're not in our own sinful hearts any better than Hitler or Stalin or Nero. We like to equivocate at the warning of sin that God brings and say, I'm not really that bad. My sins aren't that terrible. I, I'm just a liar and not even a habitual one at that. I'm not greedy. I'm just saving my millions of dollars for the future. Listen, I may have entertained some lustful thoughts in my life. I may have looked at some things I wasn't supposed to look at, thought about some people the wrong way, but I'm not like those sodomites. Paul writes to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Christian, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He says to the Galatians in Galatians 5, 19 and 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife. Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, wait, there's more, orgies, and things like these. Paul says, it's not even an exhaustive list of the sins of of people. I warn you, Paul says in verse 21 of Galatians 5, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus says, Matthew 5, 22. I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Verse 28, Jesus says again, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I'm not as bad as those sodomites, you say. Scripture says you are. 
So you see, sin begins in the heart. It's not just, sin is not just an external thing. It's sin is not just what we do with our hands and our eyes and our feet and our bodies. Sin begins in the heart. And by Jesus' own declaration, each of us is just as guilty, just as deserving of the punishment of the Sodomites as they were. Heed the warning of the danger of sin. Heed also the warning that sin never stops where you think it will. The sinful love of the city of Sodom and, and, and all of its trappings ultimately leads Lot to a desperate place by the end of chapter 19 this morning. And there, near the end of his life, living in fear for further consequences of, of sin, living in a cave with his two daughters, is made drunk and taken advantage of by his own daughters who have turned to a similar kind of sexual sin to fix their childlessness problem. Sin always has consequences, sometimes generational ones. Friends, knowing that the just and merciful God warns us of the danger of sin, hear and heed, listen to and obey God's gracious warning about sin. And his warning is gracious. For God to say, this is bad for you, not just bad, but deadly, is a gracious thing of God. Heed his gracious warning about sin. Flee from it. Run from it. Recognize that sin will always take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you will ever be able to pay. This is the danger of sin seen in Lot, seen in the people of Sodom. The people of Sodom were so horridly given over to their sin that they were ready to tear Lot limb from limb to get what they wanted. And Lot in his love for the things of the city was lulled and dulled by the sin of the city so that even in the face of warning, he lingered just a little bit longer. So see the grave danger of sin. Fear the trap of its lure. Hear the warning of God. The wages of sin is death. And understand that the just and merciful God who warns us of the danger of sin always acts justly. God always acts justly. This is the question that our text brings to us today. The the question that, that should come to the forefront of our minds. It comes to us in Abraham's conversation with God. There in the last part of chapter 18. Abraham humbly and yet boldly prays to God on behalf of those living in Sodom. And the righteous few who may be there. His question to God as he thinks on the possible destruction of the righteous people along with the wicked people in Sodom is this. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That's Abraham's prayer. That's Abraham's plea with God. God, you who judge the whole earth, will you not do what is just? Will you not do what is right? The answer to this question is undeniably yes. Yes, God will judge justly. God will always do what is right. And what is right is to bring the appropriate consequences for sin, for rebellion against God's rightful reign in the universe, to bring those consequences to bear upon sinners and to save the sinless from destruction. You have to do some pretty serious interpretive gymnastics to say that the residents of Sodom are somehow blameless in all this mess. This sexually violent mob is, 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 is abhorrent by almost every cultural standard around the world, even today. No one finds the Sodomites worthy of redemption. God is just. He is right to destroy the city. In fact, if God allows this sexually violent culture to continue in Sodom, he would, by his own standard of holiness, prove himself to be unjust. Prove himself to be wicked if he does not judge the city. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Yes, dear friends, he will. He will punish sin. But even in the midst of his punishment upon the city, notice that this just and merciful God is merciful to a few who are there. God sends his angelic duo to warn Lot and all his family. This is merciful. This is merciful. Lot extends the warning even to his sons-in-law who, who are so far gone in the culture of Sodom that, that they think that, that, that he's joking. They laugh at their father-in-law. Are you kidding me? Come on. God's not going to destroy the city. Lot lingers on the morning of the coming destruction. But the angels, as we read in 
verse 16 of chapter 19, seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. We read there, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside of the city. God is just to punish sin, but he's also merciful to redeem, to rescue some from it. Even when Lot lingers, the Lord being merciful to him, grabs him by the wrist and drags him out of the city. God acts justly. He destroys the wicked. But even his justice here in Sodom does not come without a measure of mercy toward those who heed his warning. The just and merciful God who always acts justly calls us, warns us. This text, what we learned about God this morning, warns us, friend, do not press the limits of God's mercy, but embrace it. If God has been merciful to you to warn you of the danger of sin, embrace the warning, flee from sin. It was God's intention to be just against the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, but to be merciful to Lot for the sake of Abraham. But Lot lingers. His sons-in-law laugh. His wife looks back as they're fleeing and is caught up in the destruction of the city. God in his justice said, do not eat the fruit of the tree. The day that you eat of it, you will surely die. But God is merciful to Adam and Eve, not putting them to death immediately at the moment of their first sin. God is merciful to Lot, forcing him out of the city as he hesitates there. God is merciful to you today, my dear friend, with every breath that you draw. God will judge all sin and each of us will have to give an account for our lives before his all seeing eye and his all knowing mind. One day we will each have to answer to God for every thoughtless word, every wicked intention, every lie that we told and every sin that was perpetrated against him and against others. The wages of sin is death. A physical death like that of Sodom and Gomorrah and a spiritual death in the eternal separation of our soul from the life and the presence of God. God is just. He will do what is right, but he is also merciful. The same God who will punish sin gives also a means of receiving his mercy instead. Romans 6.23 says in full, the wages of sin is death, but... I'm so glad that God has a big butt in scripture. It shows up all over the place. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God's justice calls for death for sins. Death is the curse of sin. But Paul says to us in Galatians 3 that Christ became the curse of sin for us as he hung on the cross at Calvary. The cross is then the the clearest picture of God's perfect justice towards sin and his mercy towards sinners. For there in his own sinless son, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ was put to death by sinful men. There on the cross, Jesus took upon himself the death sentence that you have incurred for your sin. He endured fire and sulfur from heaven that was headed for you. And all this he did so that you might not receive the wages of your sin, that you might not cash that paycheck for your disobedience, but that you might embrace the merciful and gracious gift of God, which is eternal life. Do not press the limits of God's mercy any longer. Do not linger to flirt with temptation and sin. Embrace Jesus Christ and the gift of God's mercy in eternal life. Friend, if you do not know Jesus this way today, hear the warning of God that sin is death, but Jesus died to pay your debt of sin, rose from the dead to make you right with God. So just place your faith in him. All you got to do is trust him with all that you know how to do with every ounce of your being, whether you're an expert in the Bible or not. What matters is that, you know, Christ and you cling to him and that you are you are pleading his name and his death and his resurrection for the payment of your sins. Be saved today. The just and merciful God warns us of the danger of sin. He he always does what is right. And in his mercy, he calls us to repentance and faith. He calls us to repentance and faith. 
Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham asks. And this is where I got really queasy last Monday as I was studying this passage because here I read in chapter 19 about Lot's offer to give his daughters over to this sexually violent mob to have their way with them. And I said, this Lot, I want to punch him in the neck. As a father of three daughters, I'm going, how, 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 Lot, how can you fathom in your mind to do such a wicked thing? Are you kidding me? I said, Lot is a disgusting fool and a wretched sinner. He's as bad as any in Sodom. And then I followed a cross-reference in my Bible to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 and 9. Will you turn there with me? 2 Peter, towards the back of your Bible. Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter. I haven't preached out of First Peter yet in this Bible, so it doesn't fall open there yet. There we go. Second Peter, chapter two, beginning in verse six. Peter writes, "If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, God condemned them, condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly." And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day by day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unjust under punishment until the day of judgment. Lot, you disgusting, despicable man. I hope you're burning in the fires of hell, I thought, Monday morning. Monday at noon, I read, God rescued righteous Lot, and I repented. (laughs) Peter offers us information that is not obvious to us in Genesis 19. That Lot is righteous. Lot is somehow righteous. He's right with God. That's what that word righteous means. It's incredibly hard to understand how how Lot could be considered righteous. It seems like his life is a wreck. Like his conscience is is dead within him. But remember how Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 has already said that Abraham was counted righteous with God. Because of what he did? No. But by his faith. By his trust in the promise of God. Surely Lot must have shared the faith of Abraham in the promise of God. No other means would make him righteous. Lot was a believer. I think Abraham must have had Lot in mind as he prayed to the Lord to spare the city that day. Somehow, some way, yes, Lot is righteous. He's right with God. Yes, Lot makes a horribly sinful decision in chapter 19, offering his daughters to this mob. Yes, his lingering in the city of sin rubs off on his daughters as they resort to incest to become pregnant later in life. But in spite of all of this, Lot is righteous. He's right with God, we can say, because and only because he had faith. He had faith in God's promise. And this is the desire of God for all, for everyone, for you today to turn from the sin that has placed you under the just wrath of God and to place faith in the promise of God. His son, Jesus, who saves by his death and resurrection, Jesus of Nazareth, who is a son of Abraham, who gives his life for the sprinkling of many nations. I dare not speak more on what God's word Does not say at this point, but this much I can say with confidence. God desires for you not to perish in your sin, but to rescue you from it by his mercy and his grace. So then, friend, fall upon the mercy of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Fall upon the mercy of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, the same letter we were just in a moment ago. 
Peter says this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. By this, he means the promise of his final judgment when Christ returns. God is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Dear friends, see that God's justice and mercy are not at odds with one another. These are not competing dispositions within the heart of God. He is not double-minded. He will judge the sin of every man, woman, and child who has ever lived. And for that sin, we all owe a debt we cannot fully pay. God is just, and he must judge sin. And if you are not united to Jesus Christ through sincere faith in him and submission to him as Lord of your life, you remain under the judgment of God. But see also how God's love for us moves him to be patient. In his mercy, he has sent his own son to become sin for us so that by faith in him, we might be declared righteous with God. So trust Jesus today. Be saved from your sins today. Cease. And I'm not just talking to those who would say, I'm not a believer today. I'm talking to some who think they are believers today, but who have never trusted Jesus this way. Stop trusting in your external acts of righteousness and your own good deeds to save you. Instead, place your life by faith in Jesus in the merciful hands of the just God who has given his son to take the wages of your sin so that you might receive his gift of righteousness and and eternal life. Our friend Paul the Apostle helps us again when he writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Many of you know these verses by heart. He says, it is by grace, by a gift of God that you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. Salvation is a real offer to all you who hear my voice this morning. You can be right with God. Your sins can be forgiven. You can be declared righteous and be saved from your sin to live a life of holiness in in unity with Christ moving forward. That is a real real possibility today through the grace of God. If you'll only answer his call to place your faith in Jesus, his son, dear Christian, you who have known Jesus by faith this morning, you have have received God's mercy and grace. You know what you have been saved from. You know what you have been saved from returning to Paul's letter. First Corinthians five verses nine, 11, uh, nine through 11. We read this earlier. Chapter 9 begins, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And in the rest of verse 9 and verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 5, Paul gives that long list of things that keeps us sins, that keep us out of the kingdom of God. And in verse 11, Paul reminds the Corinthians this, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Oh, praise the Lord that he has washed the stain of sin from your heart. Live your life then in freedom from sin, united to Jesus, being transformed daily as one who has been made right with God by faith. You here this morning who know Christ this way, you've given your life to him as Savior. You are daily repenting of sin, seeking to be made into the image of Christ. The the weight of this text of Genesis 18 and 19 is, is heavy upon your soul today. Just listen, you who know Jesus, you have the freedom this morning not to feel guilty about your sin. Be free to rejoice in this sermon today. Be free to rejoice in knowing that you have received the mercy of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Let Abraham's question search you out today. God is just and he will act justly. He will judge your sin. Your heart may be beating a little bit faster as you consider this question, knowing that you've been trusting your own outward appearances or your own good deeds for being right with God You may find yourself breathing a little more quickly or a little more shallowly this morning, knowing you've been trusting in in karma and and good deeds outweighing bad ones in life to try to squeak your way into heaven after hearing how God deals with sin. The Holy Spirit of God through his word this morning is plucking at your soul to warn you that your good deeds cannot pay for the weight of your sin. Will you remain in that state? Will you... 
linger still longer holding to your own will and your own autonomy and the city of sin that you have built in built up in your heart or will you fall upon the mercy of God who himself has endured the fullness of his own wrath against you will you linger in separation from God or will you receive today the mercy of God by repenting of sin and trusting Jesus So then look to the Lord who loves you. Look to the Lord who desires that you not perish in the good deeds done out of guilt for your sin. Give your whole life to Jesus who rose from the dead after satisfying God's divine justice. Find yourself today in the grip of God's loving grace who dove headlong into the waters of your sin to rescue you from death. Almost 300 years ago, my favorite theologian, Jonathan Edwards, preached... The sermon for which he is most popular to this day, a sermon titled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Unfortunately, this this sermon does not characterize all of Jonathan Edwards' preaching. He's not constantly a hellfire and brimstone preacher. But in that sermon, he closes this way. Therefore, let every one that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. So let everyone fly out of Sodom. Haste and escape for your lives. Look not behind you. Escape to the mountain, lest you be consumed. Dear friends, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Yes, dear friend, he has. And he shall yet again. The question for you to answer this morning is, has his justice toward you been satisfied in Christ? Are you now in the grip of his grace? By faith in Jesus, have you been declared righteous even in spite of all your wicked deeds and all of your good deeds done to try to make up for the wicked ones? Or will you linger one moment longer pressing his mercy to its limit only to receive his justice in full on your own head? Dear friend, if you don't know Christ today, know freedom from sin. Know it. Experience it. Revel in it as you place faith in Jesus Christ. Do not leave today not having searched your own heart with the question, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And and asking God, what is just for me, God? What is just? What is is right? What What is fair for me? A rebel against your cosmic reign. Your perfect holiness. What is fair for me? What is fair for you is to die in your sin. What is gracious of God is to rescue you from it by dying for your sin. Hear the call of God to repent and place faith in Jesus today. Hear the warning of the danger of, of sin. Know that God always acts justly and his justice for you has been satisfied in Christ. If your faith is in him and rejoice. And now a fourth point that's not in your worship guide. Know this morning that the just and merciful God hears the prayers of his people for the salvation of others. Know that the just and merciful God hears the prayers of his people for the salvation of others. That's how our text begins this morning. Genesis 18 verse 23, Abraham drew near and said to the Lord, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as they do. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, Abraham, get out of my face. I'll do what I want. No. No, the Lord said, if I find, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham negotiates with God from 50 to 45 to 40 to 30 to 20 down to 10. And, and, and at 10, Abraham knows I better not press my luck here. <laughs> better not press the patience of the Lord. But notice that Abraham's not just praying for the righteous in the city. He's not just praying for the 10. If Abraham's only concern was for the 10 righteous in the city, his prayer would have gone something like, God, if there are 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10 righteous in the city, we just take them out and and take care of the rest. 
But Abraham's prayer is for God to spare the whole wicked lot of Sodom and Gomorrah. Spare them all for the sake of a few righteous. Give them yet more time to repent. God says, I hear your prayer, Abraham. And if there are 10 righteous in that city, I won't destroy it. I'll give them more time. And we know there aren't 10 righteous in the city. There's barely one. And for their sake, God rescues them out of the city. But, but just see here that God does not shut Abraham down. God invites his prayer for the, the lost people at Sodom. Those who, who do not know their right hand from their left. Those who have given themselves over to so much sin and destruction that there seems to be no hope for them. Abraham prays for them. Friend, we are, we are praying for people this year. We are each of us praying for one this year that we might have the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them and invite them to believe, to extend God's mercy and grace to them this year that they might find themselves in the grip of God's grace. We are praying for those. I am praying for my mother-in-law, Judy, who has a spiritual wall built up in her heart that keeps her from hearing the gospel clearly. I'm praying, God, for the sake of my mother-in-law, tear down the wall in her heart. Let her hear the gospel. Let her embrace Jesus as Savior. Give me opportunity. Give me blessing to be a part of that God do that she's not righteous I'm not righteous on my own but God you can do it you can do it I know you can far be it from me God I'm just dust and ashes I'm I'm a pile of dirt with a soul made to love you I don't know everything but I know some people need to know Christ I know some people are far from him this morning. Friend, I know some of you in this room are far from Christ this morning. Some of you have been playing. Some of you have been pretending. Some of you have been counting on your own good deeds and your church attendance and your church membership and your Baptist heritage to be right with God. But it's only Jesus makes you right with him. It's not enough to just believe the facts of the Bible, that Jesus was a person, that he lived, that he died, that he was raised. That's not enough faith. That's not the right kind of faith to save. The right kind of faith to save is to say, I believe all these things happen. And more than that, I believe that Jesus is Lord. He's king. He deserves my obedience. He deserves my worship. He saved me from the worst possible fate I could ever imagine for myself. Jesus, take me. I'm yours. I give up. I surrender. No more of my own. Only your will. Only your ways save me. Jesus, that is faith that saves. And I'm praying that my mother-in-law, Judy Bruley, will have faith that saves in 2019. Dear friend, who are you praying for? Who are you praying for? And are you praying with the fervor and the, 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 the boldness that Father Abraham shows us to pray with? God, I might be crazy, but will you save this one? God, I know I'm asking a lot. Will you save this one? God, I know it's impossible. Their heart is so hard. They're so far from you. God, would you save this one? Would you save this one? Friend, the just and merciful God will deal justly with sin. He gives a call. He gives a warning to flee from it. But that same just and merciful God hears the prayers of those who pour out their hearts for the lost, who plead upon God's mercy and grace to use them as instruments, as messengers of the gospel, that he will use to turn the hearts of those who are far from him, who have calloused their hearts against him. Are you praying? Are you praying for the lost? If so, I thank God for you. And I encourage you, know that God hears that prayer. Know that God hears it. Pray boldly. Pray boldly. Speak with boldness about Jesus. Impinge upon the patience of God with your prayers for those who don't know Christ yet. And dear friend, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, know that our prayer right now is for you to be saved. For you to know Jesus the way that we do. For you to have your, your heart turned by the Holy Spirit to love Jesus Christ. To love God, your Father, who made you. Not to desert you, but who made you that you might know him, love him, and worship him. Amen. Trust Jesus today. Pray for the lost today. 
just a moment. We're going to have a time of response. And this is not a time for you to get up and leave. It's not a time for you to get up and walk away. It's time for you to get on your face before God in prayer. For those who don't know Christ yet. If you don't know yet Jesus this morning. This time of response is time for you to make that decision public. Say, I want to trust Christ. I'll be standing here at the front. Corey, our student minister, will be standing with me. My wife, Nikki, will join us at the front, too. If you need someone to pray with about how to trust Christ, how to receive salvation, how to be right with God today, how to flee from your sin and cling to Christ, we want to speak with you today about that. We want to share the gospel with you today. We want to pray with you to place your faith in Jesus this morning. So don't let this response time go by without responding. Dear Christian, do not leave early today. Life and death decisions are made during the time of response. Pray like it matters. Pray with boldness that God will move as we respond to his word. This just and merciful God that he would move in us now. Holy Father, that is our prayer. We who do not deserve your mercy. We who do not deserve your grace. Would you bear with us a moment longer? Hear our prayers of confession now, Father. Look into our hearts to see our desire to walk in holiness with Christ. We who know Jesus this way, God, by your Holy Spirit, kindle a a fire in our hearts. To cry out to those who do not yet know Christ. God is just and he will do what is right, but he's also merciful and he's extended his grace to you. Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. God, this morning, we, our intention is to transform this room as we respond in, in singing and in prayer to, to turn this room in, in, into a, a house of prayer to the only just and merciful God who saves sinners by his grace. We pray now, God, for those that you've laid upon our hearts to be praying for and sharing this uh, gospel with this year. We pray for those who are in our midst this morning, God, who do not yet know Christ this way. Lord, show them your love. Reveal to them your mercy and your grace through Jesus this morning. We pray for our own hearts that have often grown cold and calloused at the warning of sin and of your justice. God, do what is impossible. Melt our hearts for the things that your heart beats for. Melt our hearts for those who do not yet know Jesus Christ. Break us over the conviction of our our own sin. And God, lead us to lay our lives again at the feet of Jesus. To follow him in faithfulness once more. Oh, we love you, God. We praise you that you are just and you always do what is right. And we lay down our lives and worship before you this morning because not only are you just, but you are merciful and you are gracious. And you have given to us not what we deserved, but but what we could never do for ourselves. The gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We respond to you now, Father, with our whole lives, our whole hearts, with all that we have within us to, to pray for and to pray with. God, it's yours now. Move in this place, we pray. Holy Spirit, have your way in us. Draw us near to Christ, draw our lives into conformity to his. Hear the prayers of your church, Father. We know that you do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.